Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. I am so excited to have Zach Bush, MD, on the show today. He is a physician specializing in internal medicine, endocrinology, and hospice care. He is also an internationally recognized educator and thought leader on the microbiome as it relates to health and disease and food systems. So we're really going to get into that today. Welcome to the show, Zach. Oh, so glad to be on with you. Thanks for having me and you and the audience. Uh, blessed to be in fellowship. You have, uh, I mean, every single one of my colleagues and podcasting colleagues and friends in this paleo primal ancestral world is such a huge fan of yours. I've been hearing about you for some people like, you have to interview him. And I'm like, who's this guy? And watching some <laughs> interviews with you and really resonating with a lot of what you've said. And there's so much out there. Um, I kind of want to jump into your specialties right away. Um, let's let's talk about inflammation, which is such a root cause. And while inflammation is a natural process, it's gotten out of hand. And let's just start there before we edge into talking about the microbiome. Tell us, for the people that might not understand this concept, can you give us a rundown on it? Yeah. Uh, inflammation should actually be broken down into two categories. Unfortunately, medicine has kind of clumped them into the same word of inflammation. But acute inflammation and chronic inflammation, I think, should really have their own lexicon uh, within them because acute inflammation is much better described as adaptation. And so we basically have an adaptation system and we have uh, a chronic inflammation, which is a dysregulated, you know, already a pathologic breakdown process going on. So you have adaptation and you have, you know, consumption and destruction kind of pathways. And in the adaptation phase, you're getting stronger, not weaker with every stimulus you get. And so it's a very important realization that the human body and biology as a whole, whether we're looking at mammals all the way down to a single cell organism, biology is built around this adaptive capacity that we call acute inflammation. But again, I think the word inflammation has a lot of negative connotation to it, which doesn't play out. In the acute inflammation phase, what you're doing is you're mobilizing resources, you're mobilizing uh, you know, a regenerative capacity within the body to make yourself stronger, not weaker. So what do you and mean by acute? Give us a scenario of what an acute category would be, real life. Yeah, uh, something on the forefront of everybody's mind right now is something like a respiratory virus. And so if you get influenza or if you got uh, a coronavirus, what's going to happen is in, in the, your symptoms are going to come on at about the peak of, of your viral load. And so you're producing virus through your own RNA mechanisms. And it turns out this is a highly regulated process. So your body has decided to make the proteins from this virus. And they're new proteins for your body. They're upregulating you know, a whole cascade of, of, of issues and events within the body. This is an acute inflammatory or adaptive event that's now happening in your body as it gets updated with this new input. And so as you're starting to, to build this you know, viral load, what you're doing is you're, you're increasing a, your protein synthesis in a massive way. And so you're making new proteins your body's never made before, and you're making them in billions of copies, which is you know, a way to quickly change metabolic rate and, and all of this. Now, when I say adaptive, you know, being more important than acute inflammation is important because while you may feel achy and you know, febrile malaise and brain fog in those couple days as you're recovering from flu, that's not actually the virus at all doing that. 
what's happened is the virus peaked, started a, a stimulus towards ad adaptation, and then resolved. And so by the time you're 24, 48 hours into symptoms, your, your virus is already gone. You, you, you've already suppressed the production of that protein family. And so at no point is the virus now really responsible for anybody's death. Nobody's died from flu. Nobody's ever died from COVID. People die from complications when their, their acute uh, adaptive capacity fails to meet the opportunity and they, they now accumulate inflammation and they, cannot, that they can't resolve. And so that only happens if your reservoirs for acute adaptation are, are low. And so in a healthy individual, you have these huge pools of antioxidants and detox pathways, stem cell activation is very easy. And so you can clear massive amounts of, of cells that need to be turned over. And so adaptation is very important for longevity. If we don't stress the system, then it just, it, it kind of goes into this kind of atrophy state that you see if you put somebody in a hospital in, or in a nursing home for three weeks, they lose all their muscle mass. They're, they don't get sun, they don't get movement, they don't get fresh air, and their whole biology just collapses. They go into multi-organ failure within a month. And well, so, and that would be, and I just want to jump in there on that, with the importance of weight-bearing activity for the purposes of organ reserve, like Mark Sisson always talks about in terms of, right, because then you're in the hospital, and if you haven't challenged those lungs and they've taken a vacation, they're going to take a freaking vacation on you when you need them to, right, expel at that time. And so, like you said, no one dies of, you know, no one dies of a broken hip, right? They die of domino <laughs> effect, yeah. Yeah, and in both cases, whether it be the hip or you know influenza, you're usually dying of, of downstream pneumonia, and and so pneumonia sets in typically because you have an abnormal microbiome. We'll get into that you know later, but the point being is that when when you're in an acute phase of opportunity to get stronger, not weaker. Um, all, you have thousands and thousands of different cellular pathways that are being induced to uh, create newness in the cell, create youth, literally. And so when you are in recovery from the flu or COVID, you know, remember 50% you know, of people who are exposed to that virus never have any symptoms that they identify. Another 40% you know, of the remainder have mild symptoms, and then you have a few that are really sick and stay home for a week or two or three, and they kind of have ups and downs of fevers and this kind of inflammatory pathway. And those are the people, of course, that had a, a, a limited reserve of, of adaptation capacity. So low glutathione uh, production within their bodies and the like. And so with that, uh, that acute uh, adaptive phase, you're doing all kinds of beneficial things. And so it's really important to remember that fever is one of the biggest gifts that can happen to a human being. And here we always suppress it with Tylenol and we rush in and like, oh, you don't want a fever. Like if you're, you know, you know, no, that's not at all the biology. When when a cell hits 105 degrees, it it, it dies. Like if it doesn't have enough adaptive capacity. And so what we do uh, to improve the efficacy of chemo uh, around the world, it's done in the U.S. We don't do this, and I'm I still don't know all the market forces that have kept this from being normal. But hyper um, hyperthermia really potentiates the the capacity of chemotherapy to work really well. So you heat the body with uh, heating blankets and hot water and all of this, and you heat the body to 103, 104 degrees, and then give the chemo, you get a completely different result. You're putting a thermal stress uh, that's going to potentiate this in a damaged cell population like cancer. Cancer is a very weak, vulnerable, damaged system. And so when you stress it with heat, it's there. So now you think about what's going to happen if you know, we're constantly trying to keep our kids from having a fever, 
the first sign we're giving them anti-inflammatories, prednisone, and you know everything else as soon as they get COVID, which is part of the paradigm. If you say what's working for COVID, it's antibiotics and prednisone. That's ludicrous. All that's happening is they're suppressing the adaptive capacity of those bodies, and those that are are short on reserve may benefit in the short run. But you've now suppressed the entire population's ability to do that adaptive, you know, uh, shift. So, at any rate. That's a bit of a side, but the the reality is we need to start to see these adaptive acute inflammatory short term events as therapeutic, not as illness. And what about what about the chronic? Because that's that that's a different ballgame, right? That's people not having a virus hit them; they're just walking around every day. I mean, I had systemic inflammation, and I can say that it sucked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does suck. And what's happening there? is night and day compared to the adaptive phase. So acute inflammation, a great example of acute inflammation is, is running down a set of stairs. And so w- when you go running uh, a set of stairs, you'll create millions of microfractures within your bone. And immediately you recruit osteoclast to tear up those, those microfractures and they recruit an osteoblast to lay down no bone. And your bone mineral density is literally stronger for having had all of those microfractures. That's why when you put somebody in a sedentary state, their bone mineral disappears is because they're not doing this, this turnover of cellular life. And so the, the picture that emerges, whether it's you know, never let anybody get a fever or never let anybody run downstairs, is that a, a static body is always a decaying body. It's a, a body in atrophy. Biology has to be turning over. Biology needs the challenge, needs the stressor to adapt uh, to something stronger, to, to achieve uh, a biologic newness to it. Right, because they're, but, the, these organs, like I mentioned earlier, they are not, if they're not challenged, right? If they're not challenged in some way, they're not stepping up to their full potential. And that's, again, like you said, you're just sitting there and you're wasting away and making, putting yourself in a situation for an acute situation to not work out well. That's right. And and one of the you know effects of that is not only are you muscle wasting when you're sitting around, you're also not encouraging the body to make that reservoir of coping mechanisms. And so, you know, as uh, as fuel starts getting stored as fat, for example, and and you're just doing fat storage, and you're not stressing the muscle system enough to encourage you know trafficking of resources into lean muscle mass maintenance or lean muscle production one of the downstream consequences of that is you no longer encouraging the body to make nitric oxide, which is one of its critical anti-inflammatory and communication networks, a redox molecule that reverses cardiovascular disease, reverses aging, does all kinds of amazing things, but you don't release it if you're not moving. So nitric oxide and subsequently glutathione and these critical reservoirs of antioxidants simply just start to diminish because they, there's not, not a, not a call to action for their services. And so without that call to action, you're getting this, this chronic uh, leak, if you will, of the reservoir. And so the reservoir becomes depleted um, and, and you're not, uh, you've now kind of for, forgotten the cellular memory, if you will. And so now when you have an acute stressor, all of the enzymes that would go on to produce nitric oxide, store nitric oxide in the epithelium, produce glutathione from the liver, vascular tree, gut lining, all those enzyme pathways are asleep. And it takes time. Now you've actually got to go make those enzymes. And so now you need to call into action something to go make the proteins that'll make glutathione. But if you've been sitting around in a house that has, you know, mold in it and not a normal microbiome, 
And you can get mold toxin that then you know, triggers this hypermethylation across glutathione synthase as a, the promoter region of that gene. And you can't even make glutathione synthase that would go on to make glutathione. So what we find is we are always the reflection of our macro environment. And, and so as our macro environments become more and more isolated away from nature, and we spend more and more time indoors, we spend more and more time in, in a small subset of what should be a rich ecosystem of microbiome, we become very uh, locked down. And, and I find it interesting that in our lab for the last seven years, we've been showing that if you take vast amounts of information or, or communication network from the microbiome, protein synthesis happens at speeds we've never seen before. And you start making tons of cool proteins, detox proteins like DPP4 enzymes. You, you start upregulating the production of tight junctions to make sure your boundaries of your gut, bastard tree, blood-brain barrier, kidney tubules, all are getting stronger through this communication of the microbiome. And so once you start to realize that the human cells rely on a wireless network that are not made by the human cells but are made by ecology itself and the, the biodiversity within it, you start to realize how is it that we age so fast when we step out of nature? When we put kindergartners in old schools that are full of mold and n give them no PE because that's too expensive and you know, start to eliminate all of the, the, the movement outside and, and you lock them down in a room, they literally will lock down their genome through hypermethylation of their adaptive capacity for acute inflammatory response. So now when they get challenged, they tip right into a chronic inflammatory state. So now they have food sensitivities, environmental sensitivities, mold sensitivities, uh, gluten, gluten sensitivity, peanut allergies, you know, celiac disease with, with direct autoimmune with the, uh, the gluten substrates, you know, and it goes on down the list. But you're, the mechanism is so poetic in some ways, like, very elegant. Whatever you do at the macro level is going to happen at the micro level. And so now you look at a pandemic and we lock down a global population, we're screwed. Our immunity as, a, as a, a population globally just diminished radically. And of course, it's the high net worth people that aren't really stressed about paying the bills. Well, they're like, okay, a little forced vacation. I'm going to spend more time with family and I'm going to go outside. And it's, of course, our low socioeconomic people in all these neighborhoods that are, are just lost their jobs, are so stressed out. They're right, they they can't drive to a park. They can't take a train to a park to go get out there. They're, yeah. they're, those places are kind of locking down. It's hard to get out. Yeah, and studies are showing that you know those populations are seeing a 16-pound weight gain as a population just since the beginning of COVID. And so they're gaining weight. They're locked down. They're, they're in this metabolic atrophy state. They're losing lean muscle. Their, their uh, mood disorders are on this catastrophic rise right now, major depression, anxiety disorders, child abuse is raised at a faster rate than we've seen in, in decades, spousal abuse has increased, you know, uh, consensual sex in partnerships has gone down, like everything's going the wrong direction under this, this stressor. And I feel like we're just now showing the severity of the pendulum swing of isolate people as a population away from community away from each other and things are going to get worse before they get better. And so we, we're really demonstrating it in a powerful way through this whole terror of what's in nature and some virus out there that's going to attack us. We're seeing the very worst of what we do as a human species when we isolate. Let's get into this microbiome, our gut, 
so many things are related from here. They stem from there. They cause problems. You have a gut issue. It can spiral off into a million things. It can affect our brain. Um, for those that are, I mean, most of the audience is pretty new, not new to this conversation, but give us a give us a rundown on what the microbiome is and and the and that center, our gut, our gut, the center of which kind of dictates everything. Yeah. So th- there's two massive paradigm shifts happening in our understanding of gut health over the last decade. And the first of these is to find out something extremely radical, which is that human health is no longer at, you know, focused on or founded upon the human cell. This is just as you know, radical as the 1600s when Galileo with his telescope discovers that Earth is not at the center of the universe. And it was so disconcerting to scientists. It, it was disruptive to religions. It was, you, know, you just couldn't find a more catastrophic statement as Earth is not at the center of the universe. In fact, we're circling a small sun that's circling in a giant galaxy that's you know, out in the middle of space with a billion other galaxies. Like That just didn't make any sense to anybody. And in the same way, we see, you know, this, the, the misinformation that's being put out there around COVID is exemplary of how slow it is for science to come to terms with new information of this paradigm shifting capacity. To find out that human cells are not responsible for human, or not even capable of human health, but instead they are fully reliant upon microbiome ecosystems of, that are communicating across redox signaling is such a big shift. It, it's, it literally changes our whole cancer management. We're spending you know, $3.7 trillion a year in the wrong paradigm now because we're, all we're doing is giving drugs to support human cellular pathways. Statin drugs disrupt the, the, the you know, HMG-CoA uh, enzyme pathway in the liver, which is an entirely human enzyme pathway for making anti-inflammatories blood pressure medicines disrupt human receptors that would then go and regulate our blood pressure. We already know, and you can look at you know, any thousands of journals, that the microbiome in the gut is predicting whether you have hypertension or diabetes or hyperlipidemia or obesity. It's the microbiome that is predicting that. The pathology that develops in the human cell is a symptom, not at all a root cause scenario for pathogenesis. The, the human cells are dysfunctioning due to a lack of communication, due to a lack of nurturing support from the microbiome. So that's you know, paradigm shift number one. Microbiome, not the human cells, at the center and focal point of human health. Number two, radical shift is the understanding that the microbiome is not relegated to our colon. You know, all these years we've said, oh, well, the gut is, you know, has all the bacteria and there's good bacteria and there's bad bacteria. We have this warlike mindset, not just of the microbiome, apologize for the dogs behind me, the microbiome, but also this warlike mentality or belief system that in fact, the immune system's responsibility is to keep the body sterile. So now we've moved to the realization that, oh my gosh, every single organ system, the liver, the kidneys, the eyeballs, the, the brain itself has an organic garden of micronutrients and micro that are being produced by the microbiome locally. And so we now know that a healthy human body has healthy microorganisms, bacteria, protozoa, uh, fungi, yeast, living in the brain, living in the gut, you know, living in the, in the organ systems throughout the body. That is a radical shift in our understanding of immunity because we've thought that sterilization was the key to human health since the late 1800s. So for 150 years, we've been saying we've got to sterilize the environment. We've got to wash our hands. We've got to do this and that because and the immune system, God's sake, has got to fight off every virus, every bacteria, everything else. And now we find out that there's actually 10 to the 15 viruses in my bloodstream today. 
10 to the 15. That's 100, 100 billions of, of viruses in my bloodstream today so that I can communicate genetically, which is exactly what the virome is, is just a genetic communication network. I have to be communicating cell to cell throughout my whole organ system, and I need to communicate outside of myself as to what genetic information and decisions I'm making on a daily basis. And so I'm exuding virus, I'm exuding exosomes, I'm exuding all this genomic information all the time to coordinate you know, behavior. And so not only is there bacteria in every single organ of my body in a healthy state, there's viruses throughout the whole system. And so th these are radical shifts. There's no such thing as good bacteria and bad bacteria. It turns out every bacterium has a role within the species or within the, the ecosystem, each species having its niche. This is going to take us decades, unfortunately, to adapt our science to, and we may go extinct in our continued misinformation here and confusion and inability to make this transformation. And the reason why I fear our extinction is watching our behavior in regards to something like this pandemic. Here we are creating viruses out of biologic stress that we're creating out of an extinction level stressor on the planet through our extractive destructive pathway. And as soon as a virus emerges to help update, again, it's all about adaptation. The viruses are there for genomic adaptation. 50% to, to inform us, to inform us. It's, a, it's literally a software update. And so you have to have that software update else you don't know how to adapt to a new stressful environment. What is that new stressful environment? Well, if you look at Hubei province, it's the highest stress level of antimicrobials and air pollution in the world. It's the highest level of antimicrobials because it's the highest spraying of Roundup anywhere in the world or glyphosate uh, containing herbicides. And it's the highest pork and poultry industry in the world uh, with antibiotic demand. And so we're pouring it into our food system for global distribution of poultry, pork, and grains, corn, et cetera, and all this GMO crop. And Hubei province is the epicenter of that. And so we're putting extinction level stress, losing a species every 20 minutes around the world now, and Hubei being a massive epicenter of that. As soon as the virome goes out into the world for adaptation, it's supposed to disperse through the air very, very smoothly in a, in a radical way over an eight-week period. Uh, we'll have our first distribution across the northern hemisphere, and then over a four-month, six-month period, we'll, we'll cover the whole earth in a new viral update. And the pattern in which it travels is very predictable because of air currents and everything else. And so we're supposed to put these viruses through the whole ecosystem through aerosols. Viruses have been distributing throughout the planet in this fashion for billions of years. They weren't waiting for airplane travel to spread viruses. So when you see a CDC map of this person flew here and therefore it spread through North America, that is complete scientific BS now. We know that viruses spread without human behavior. If an airplane had anything to do with it, it maybe it bounced things forward six to eight days. Wait six to eight days, and that virus is already present in North America for the air traffic across from Hubei into the U.S. and northern hemisphere, northern half of the U.S. in that initial phase, and then it comes back through the southern half of the U.S. and the and the kind of more temperate uh, or more tropical climates about three months later as it, as it comes back in a reverse loop. And so this cycle is very predictable; it's been there forever. What happens to create illness rather than just an adaptive update is air pollution. And so air pollution carries something called PM2.5, which is tiny carbon particulate that happens to bind viruses abnormally, and it creates clumping of viruses. And so instead of your lung getting an update with a few thousand uh, viruses, which your body has no problem adapting to, it can take that genomic information, decide whether it will, will translate it or not. You may make some viruses internally. But everybody who's ever heard about viromics and, and how 
infections, quote unquote, occur, is you need millions and millions of copies, typically in the millions or billions of copies of the virus to hit, hit the human system and overload its normal cap capabilities. Well, if you have PM 2.5 in high concentrations, it's going to cause abnormal clumping instead of breathing in one virus in a small space. You could have thousands of viruses that are clumped onto these PM 2.5s. And so you get an abnormal overwhelm of a single cell that's suddenly getting hit with a bunch of this. And so this is how we create the appearance of pandemics and blame viruses when, in fact, it's through this environmental ecosystem level stress that we put on through antimicrobials and then create an abnormal delivery system through air pollution to create own overwhelming capacity so that we do see death related to the presence of a virus. Again, the virus is out of the bloodstream by the time any of those people die. It's not from the acute adaptive request of the virus. It's from downstream complications of not having our biologic reserve to respond to acute uh, adaptation. Well, let's, let's, let's get into that biological reserve because everyone listening to this and watching this is, uh, by the way, this is a video episode for people that are watching. We've moved over to do that. So some of these are coming up. Um, how do we get to that point? Everyone's looking to improve their immunity and, you know, and have this, this whole system of their microbiome working efficiently to the best of our, you know, lo with longevity and anti-aging. Now um, I'll say something, you know, I was, I, I do a ton of hiking in California and it's pretty dusty. So sometimes by the time we're done, there's dust all over me and, you know, and I've breathed in all of this stuff. And I know you, <laughs> you would say, go girl. Yeah. Um, and I was walking with a primal friend and we were talking about that. And he's like, you know, this is really good for us, what we're doing right now. And then I heard you talk about like, Hey, anywhere where there's ferns, go sit there and read a book. Tell us why we need to get into dirt and get into nature with, you know, you know, piggybacking on this discussion of getting ourselves exposed to things that are going to inform, form our microbiome in a healthy, positive way. Awesome. Yeah, it, it, this kind of comes down to a similar topic, you know, to where we were getting with this old mentality of like the immune system needs to sterilize the environment and bacteria are only supposed to stay in the gut. Through that belief system where we develop this kind of warfare mentality where there must be good bacteria trying to fight the bad bacteria. And we had this like warlike thought process or belief system about the microbiome itself. Only to find out, of course, like you go to a, a jungle or you go to, you know, a coral reef nobody's fighting anybody. There's a natural relationship between species. Yes, some species are eating some species. Yes, there's a hierarchy of food chains. Yes, there's all this stuff happening on, but never to one another's extinction. There's always this balance. There's this beautiful orchestration going on that biology has figured out over billions of years. And each species seems to have this integrity and respect for the other species in that even those that they would hunt, they understand that it's a sacred event. And you can see the interaction of animals when they hunt one another is radically different than the annihilation approach that we use as humans. You know, no animal separates itself from the killing. And so I'm intrigued that, you know, you, you never see a shark outsourcing the killing of, of the seal. Like it has <laughs> to go and chew the head off the seal. And so it's, it's a visceral, connected thing humans lost our spirituality around the consumption of protein when we outsource this thing and, and we distance Killing ourselves. by proxy is what you're saying instead of hunting our own food, right? That's right. And so when we outsource the, the, the kind of consumption of nature that we never get to spiritually interact with it, we actually lose so much, I think spiritually, energetically, but from a microbiome standpoint. What happens when uh, we study the gut, for example, or the microbiome of the skin and all of the organ systems of the Hatsa tribe, which are you know, out, out in, uh, in West Africa, you get this incredible, 
you know, microbiome that it represents species you've never seen on an American or, or somebody from a Western nation. Uh, one of the predominant species in the gut of the Hatsa tribe can only be found in nature on the hide of zebras. Turns out that the Hatsa tribe will hike for many days. Uh, the men will go out and they'll, they'll find a, a herd of zebra and they'll shoot from great distance with their bows and they'll take down a couple zebra, they'll quarter the zebra, and they'll carry these zebra quartered on their shoulders for two days on the way back to the tribe. By the time they're back there, the zebra hide has informed their entire microbiome. And as soon as the tribe sees them coming, all of the kids come and just jump all over. The, the dads are back and the men are back and they're hugging each other and they're all climbing over each other and there's all this skin touch on. They're wearing almost no clothing whatsoever. And so pretty soon, by the time that zebras even arrive, the whole tribe is covered in zebra microflora. Isn't it probably appropriate to think that now that gut of those individuals that are informed by the very microbiome of the animal they're about to consume is going to deal much differently with that protein than if they had never seen a zebra before and somebody came with a plastic-wrapped styrofoam-based thing with a, a pat of, of pink meat in it and said, here's zebra. But, but is it like, I, I understand the philosophical theory behind that, but like, is there any science to say that it's better that I have this relationship and that my, if I have the microbiome on me from the zebra, that somehow I'm going to, uh, you know, the facilitation of that, that protein in my body is going to be better? It's so exciting. It's a great question. It seems like an intriguing beauty to it or poetic. But then uh, what happened with the Hatsa tribe is a group of missionaries came through and delivered boxes and boxes of antibiotics and said, if you ever get sick, you should take these antibiotics. And the researchers that were on staff had been mandated by the Harvard IRB that they could never intervene on any, any decisions the tribe was making. They couldn't give any input. They couldn't tell them to do things or not to do things. And so they immediately called their, their research you know, uh, coordinators and said, look, we feel an ethical need to remove these antibiotics from the tribe and came down that they weren't allowed to do anything tribe didn't have a word for antibiotic. The tribe had no word for sick. And so instead of waiting to, to get sick to take the antibiotics, they sat around that night and ate the entire box, is all the boxes of ciprofloxacin and all these horrible antibiotics. And the, the, the few researchers that were on the ground that night were literally weeping. They just felt like this is the end of the, the gut flora of mankind because they demonstrated by this time years into the study that the, the odds of tribe had 10x the microbiome flora than a western consumer and so they felt like this was the last semblance of what the the full potential american gut look, or, or human gut would look like and they would now suddenly you know adapt to this american gut dumbed down 10 percent version they kept doing their study every morning, going out, collecting stool samples from the tribe, sending them back to the states. And a month later, they get, they get the data in. The day after, the next day after, every day for the rest of that month, after one of the most massive antibiotic exposures that any human could possibly get, there was zero change in the microbiome. There was no collapse of the microecosystem in their gut. There was, they were 100% resilient. And the conclusions of that portion of the study were that these hunters are in such continuous communication and relationship to the greater ecosystem that the gut represents just a tiny little facet. And so you can wipe out the gut flora, but within minutes it's repopulating because they're breathing outside. They never went inside a building. They're breathing outside. They're touching the same soil. They're touching each other's skin. They're all up in each other's thing, reinforcing each other's microbiome minute to minute. 
In contrast, in America, a nice study, you know, to exemplify the opposite, was done, a couple of them in cell, in September of 2018. So if you look up journal cell September 2018 probiotics, you're going to see the opposite effect. Two weeks of antibiotics uh, uh, content within those consumers, 80% destruction of the microbiome. And so uh, with that 80% loss of the microbiome, they were randomized to three groups. One group took their own feces encapsulated as a fecal transplant oral to their, ba- to their own ba- bacterial biome that was collected before antibiotic exposure. Not surprisingly, they recovered within 20 days. And so very fast repopulation of, of that ecosystem by repopulating themselves with their own uh, gut flora. Well, well now it sounds, like, it sounds like you were, you're kind of bagging a little bit on probiotics. Are they useful in any scenario to you? Because uh, frankly, I've known several people where it's been helpful to do a course of them in certain environments. And I also would like to piggyback off of what you said before. And I think this is what you mean. Like, for example, candida might be present and that's okay. Everyone's getting along if it gets out of control, right? Because those are the scenarios where things have to be brought back into balance if someone's like overrun with it. Um, so I think that's the kind of point you were making there that yes, we, we can't eliminate all candida or something like that. It, there's got to be some in there, but it's just a matter of how severe. And then I guess answer the second one or both and touch on what I'm kind of looking for, if that makes sense. Yeah. So the second arm, one was fecal transplant recovery in 20 days. The second arm of the study was probiotics. And they used a three-species probiotic, one of the most common probiotics on the market. And um, with that probiotic, they saw in the first 24 hours the same recovery effort that the the fecal transplant was doing. So there was this initial surge in, in microbiome recovery. But with continued use of the probiotics, the bacteria dive right back down to the same level of suppression that the antibiotic at two weeks had caused. So you're saying temporary or a skosh or something might be helpful, but a long-term regular use isn't? It wasn't doing anything because it turns out there was a third arm that was placebo. And in the placebo arm, they were taking off at the same rate as the fecal transplant and the probiotics, all three recovering at the same rate. And then suddenly the probiotics suppressed. The fecal transplant recovered at 20 days. The placebo, a sugar pill, recovered complete microbiome diversity at 30 days. And at six months, they still had not recovered in the probiotic phase. And so probiotics were suppressing the microbiome's capacity for a, a balanced microbiome ecosystem. And that makes sense. If you take billions that, of copies... By the way, just plain devil's bacteria. advocate, plain devil's advocate on that study. So that's one study, one people, one situation. Is that, in your opinion, always the case? Are probiotics something you would say, don't ever bother with those people? Yes, I would now say that. Right up until that study, I would have said that, oh, maybe right after antibiotics, it makes sense. Or if you have inflammatory bowel disease, I used to use this, this exact probiotic was in the study. I used to prescribe all my in, inflammatory bowel patients. And so, uh, you know, I thought, oh, okay, these, these make sense. And there were some small studies that had suggested maybe some benefit. But if you go back and then read those studies, they were worse than placebo. And so placebo has a 30% success rate. And, you know, most of the drugs that we're prescribing across anything now, whether we're talking cardiovascular disease or yes, the, the absolute risk reductions are in the single digits. And so you're looking at a 5% benefit or a 10% benefit, whereas placebo is consistent, you know, consistently a 30% benefit. We don't do placebo-controlled trials in something like a probiotic. And this was the very first one that we had seen a, pro, uh, a placebo arm in a probiotic study. And so you know, it's very you know, unfortunate. And we haven't done a, a, a placebo-controlled trial in chemotherapy since the 1960s. We'd put them head-to-head all the time. We'll say, well, this chemo versus this chemo. And, and typically, we're in a 10 to 15% improvement of outcomes to get FDA approval in a chemotherapy. 
whereas a placebo is cons- is typically in the 25 to 30% range of benefit. And so we consistently are coming in way below placebo, whether we're talking probiotics or chemotherapy, because we're not dealing with nature's complexity. So why would you go sit under the, the ferns and breathe? It's because we see that in a placebo group, they're able to recover full diversity if they go back to their lifestyle. You mean go back to nature, like go the, back that, to nature. that tribe. So we all need to get. So you we would say, let's say that. someone in the States had uh, finished a course or they have antibiotics. And instead of the old paradigm of, hey, take some probiotics to replenish and balance and blah, blah, blah. What would you say? Get out into nature, throw some dirt in your mouth. I mean, other than dietary management, because we know what those answers are going to be. But aside from the right paradigm of mouth to anus and making sure we're getting all of the right regenerative agriculture foods, et cetera. What else could that person do after they've been through a long haul with antibiotics? Yeah, the nutrition is real. And so the nutrition is your fastest way to nature. And so if you go outside and uh, pull a potato out of the ground, the amount of microbiome you get just in an airburst as you're pulling a root vegetable out of the ground is massive. You're getting spores of, of thousands of different there, there's 5 million species of fungi in soil systems, 5 million species, okay? You can't wrap your head around this as a human consumer. You know, we're, we're l- lucky when we study uh, spore counts in like air, air ducts in schools and hospitals and stuff like that, we'll we're, we're typically see three dominant species, not 5 million. And so this is why indoors is so dangerous to our health is because we're getting this tiny, tiny little subset. So why do people in the U.S. have such a hard time recovering from antibiotics when somebody doesn't even have damage of antibiotics in, in, the, in West Africa? It's because we have created these extremely narrow ecosystems in which we reinforce our bodies with almost no diversity whatsoever. And so not only are, the, are we taking probiotics, we're living in a probiotic environment of just a few dominant species. And therefore, we have this weakened immune system and we, we lack the balance. It's interesting when you said, you know, well, isn't candida bad if there's too much? No, candida is not actually the problem. And I would, the exact same phenomenon happens on a farm. Most of the farms in the Midwest now are drowning under Roundup-resistant weeds. They've sprayed so much Roundup that the weeds have genetically modified themselves so that they can maintain. And now they have these vicious weeds that are actually disrupting. They can't even run their, their uh, tilling equipment or their, uh, their um, harvesters through these weeds because they've got trunks on them. And so they'll destroy their equipment. And so these places are getting overrun with weeds. And so they come in with more weed sprayers and kill more weeds. Or we come in as physicians and spray now instead of antibiotics. Now that person has candida. So we spray an antifungal to try to kill the candida or the herbicide to kill the weed. And what happens is we further destroy the ecosystem's recovery and we cause greater problems in the next few months. As soon as you stop spraying a farm, within a single season, you can see all of the weeds gone. All you have to do is you go in and you plant uh, 18 to 32 species cover crop and you'll see all the weeds disappear. No herbicides, no spraying, the microbiome comes back into balance and the soil systems and and the flora and the fauna come into balance around that. In the exact same way, if we see somebody with candida, we need to rush to create biodiversity rather than kill the candida. The candida is not at all at fault. The candida is, in fact, I would argue, not even overgrown. It's grown to exactly the right level to start the recovery of the process. Because if you wipe out the bacteria with the antibiotic, the, the fungal community has to start the, the, the fuel production for a new ecosystem to start. You can't have any fuel without microbiome. So if you just took an antibiotic and you wiped out the bacteria, you're now left with 
maybe a few protozoa and the fungal world to start that regenerative generative process of fuel production, resource development, trafficking of resources to and fro in the gut and into the human body. And so the yeast is going to overgrow exactly to the level of damage done and the need to recover it. What it's doing is providing a substrate to new bacteria. But instead of telling that person with a yeast problem, go, you know, start bathing in, in, uh, in freshwater systems and, and go and make sure you're doing a, a waterfall plunge every day. And on that little short hike to your waterfall, make sure you're brushing your arms underneath all of the ferns as you walk through the path to get as much microbiome to repopulate. That yeast will be gone in a couple months. And so, you know, and it's not, it's not gone. It's just, you know, it's, it's no longer has its, its damage control mode and it's, it's diminished itself back into the population to, to fulfill its small niche role. That yeah. needs to be our approach. Yeah, you uh, well, you mentioned Roundup, and uh, so let's talk about how that stuff and the chemical companies are destroying the land where you live in Hawaii, particularly Kauai and other places. So when I went there several years ago, I was there for a month, and I'm like, why are people protesting? Like, I never see protests in Hawaii. I was like, what's happening? And then I was led down a dark spiral path into all of the land leased to Monsanto and all these chemical companies. I tried to even interview people about this, and some were like, I can't even talk to you because they're already effing with me. And I was like, oh my gosh, what, have I just entered a John Grisham novel, right? But what I learned was the west part of Kauai where I had been staying and I had no idea and I'm walking by, the, I'm walking by this shiz every day. They're just spraying all sorts of junk and they're ruining the land. They're literally ruining the land that some people say, and I'm not sure if this is true, that in order to repair that soil, that would mean like growing hemp and having it go there for years. And my gosh, they are just literally the chemical companies are testing out their GMO corn crops in places like Hawaii, and it's really ruining paradise. And I think... um, I think it's Pierce Brosnan's wife did a documentary on it. I haven't seen it yet. And I know there's another one. Poisoning Paradise. It's phenomenal. Okay, Poisoning Paradise. And then there's that other one like Aina, Aina, uh, which is a short short brief one. So it's insane that I go to the do-it-yourself center and there's a wall around up. Like why? Right. Okay. So whatever. But you know what? Also, Krispy Kremes should also probably be illegal if we're going to go in that direction. But this is something that is really important for people to know, not to use it, but also how can we avoid it, right? Tell us, because this is what, through organic farming and, and, and other, I mean, I'm assuming if you've got a farm and you're spraying Roundup for other stuff and you have animals on that farm, they're being exposed to it too. But just give us a little bit of rundown on glyphosate. And by the way, the company did what it was a, a huge class action lawsuit, right? Um, about this causing cancer, Correct. So yeah. give us a rundown on this horrible chemical and, um, yeah. Yeah. So glyphosate uh, came on the market in 1974 and went into a broad spectrum spraying uh, in our farm system in northern United States and Canada in 1976. And um, it was, you know, a very potent weed killer. It, it killed anything that you sprayed it on. It was initially developed before it was patented as a, a, an herbicide. It was actually patented as a... Uh, a pipe cleaner for large municipal uh, piping systems because oh it, it's a very potent uh, chelator. And so uh, mineral deposit within sewage lines is very uh, destructive over time to the function of those sewer lines and they clog up. They found if they poured higher amounts of Roundup uh, or glyphosate into those pipelines, it would chelate, it would grab all the mineral off the pipes and, and flush it out of the system. Worked really well, except they couldn't put it on the market because the effluent that would end up in the pond 
on the on the backside of that pipe would be killed. They would destroy the whole ecosystem. They'd have invasive molds and all kinds of horrible algaes and all of this. And, and so it just didn't work. They couldn't put it on the market. So, but they could see that it was killing everything green around the ponds. And so that, that's when they decided to switch over to an herbicide uh, application. And it, you know, it wasn't a difficult leap because, of course, it's an organophosphate, which is the same category of you know, the Agent Orange that they had been working on in, in, in Vietnam War. For 20 years, they'd been selling you know, millions and millions of, of tons of Asian orange to the U.S. military to dump it into Cambodia and, and North, North Vietnam. And we literally created moonscapes out there with, with Asian orange. I mean, literally looks like the dust of the moon. We took some of the most verdant jungles in the world and turned them into moonscapes. I don't know what the, the karmic weight of killing billions of tree frogs and insects and pollinators and monkeys. And, but we did that. We did that in mass. And that never got, that was not the story that got told about that conflict that ran from the late fifties to the early seventies. But for 25 years, we annihilated the jungles there with this chemical of organophosphate, Asian orange. Now we're spraying that into our food system starting in the 1970s as we lose the, the marketplace for the Vietnam War. The organophosphates need a new, new face, a new role. And so they get transitioned from uh, war into maybe a, a, you know, a, a commercial pipe cleaner. That didn't work. So now well, we can treat weeds. And so in uh, 1976, we start uh, treating weeds and we used it to kill off cover crops. So if there was a cover crop growing, we would spray that and then we would plant our corn, soybean or the rest into that, that uh, soil a few days later. And so that was 1976. In the 1980s, glyphosate um, manufacturer was, was just Monsanto at the time. Uh, and Monsanto did some extraordinary cancer studies and published in the late 80s their own cancer data, proving this thing caused all kinds of horrible things. And, uh, but they showed that that was at concentrations that they could never reach as a weed killer because the, the weed killer would kill the crops if they reached that kind of level. Just four years later, a farmer in, in Northern Europe finds out that he could spray his wheat with Roundup to speed up the harvest of it because um, the, the weather was coming and he, he knew he was going to lose his entire crop if he didn't get it harvested. But you can't harvest the grain unless it's dry. It's going to mold. So he sprayed the entire crop with Roundup, killed it in, in 24 hours, and then harvested it. And it was like this miracle. And he saved his whole harvest. And for the first time in 1992, Monsanto took the opportunity to rebrand themselves as a desiccant or drying agent. And that's the moment we started spraying weed across the northern United States. And by 1993, one year later, we see this huge debut of celiac disease, autoimmune disease to wheat, which of course is not a wheat problem. It's a glyphosate poisoning of, of the, the relationship to the immune system, which I can get into in a minute. By 1996, not only were we spraying wheat and soybeans and other legumes that needed to be dry before harvest, we got the Roundup Ready corn, soybean, alfalfa, sugar beets, you know, go on down the list. Now we have over 30 different crops that are genetically modified to HANA. And so by, you know, the 80s, we were saying, well, we'll never reach these kinds of concentrations of cancer-causing glyphosate. By 1992, we were literally spraying it in the wheat right before sending it to market. And then by 1996, we're spraying it on all of our commodity crops, which of course is ending up in our water systems and soil systems. And we're starting to put massive amounts of this into the Mississippi and every other tributary river system in the United States. And we get these cancer epidemics at the end of every one of these rivers. 
And so the cancer epidemics that are hitting in the South never existed before 1996. We, it was never the epicenter of cancer. Cancer was always Northeast. Northeast has always been our demographic of cancer death. Uh, Northwest was uh, only known for prostate cancer, but Northeast was always our epicenter. Now the epicenter is the, the last 90 miles of the Mississippi River. It's called Cancer Alley. It's the highest rates of cancer in the entire developed world. So, so, so no jumping into the Mississippi frickin' river is what you're saying too. Oh, right? it's worse than that. In fact, in, if you go up to the North side of the Mississippi tributaries, Indiana, good example of this, Indiana's rivers. Now 80% of them are classified as not appropriate for recreational use. They're not only p- not potable, you can't drink them. You shouldn't touch them because they're so toxic. Right. 80% of the rivers of Indiana are, are not deemed safe for recreational use now. And so that's a terrifying statistic. It means that we are literally killing the most precious commodity on earth, which of course is fresh water. Yeah, and I, and I remember uh, I spent, I've spent a lot of time in northern Wisconsin for, for many years as a child. And we literally, we bathed in the lake, but we were also, if we were on a canoe trip, the water was so pristine, you could just take your mess kit cup, dip it right at the side of the canoe and drink it didn't even have to boil it. You know what I yep. mean? And then boy, yep. that took a turn. And I, I, I hate to say I remember those days, but that's the case. Um, I really, gosh, I, I need to have you back on because I, I need to rack your brain about so much more, but in sort of kind of coming to the end of our time here and we have so much more to discuss, but I do want to bring up and I'm bringing it out right now because I've been doing it every day, which is your products because this is Ion Gut Health. And then there's also Restore. You talk about the microbiome being in our nasal cavities. Let's talk about these two products because when you look it up and it's terahydrite, am I going, what is it? What is that? Explain us, explain to us what this product is. Yeah. So this product came out of my cancer research in some ways. And so I had left the university. I was no longer doing my chemotherapy development, um, but I was uh, running a a nutrition center for reversing chronic disease that I had started in 2010. And in that journey, uh, we found that a huge proportion of people were no longer tolerating superfoods. And so we were seeing increased inflammation and bloating on things like kale, beets, sauerkraut, stuff that was supposed to be fixing my patients was making them worse. And now you see this in droves, right? Now everybody's got histamine sensitivity and lactin sensitivity and gluten sensitivity. Like people can't even eat the very foods that we know have the highest levels of medicine within them. So the kale, the Brussels sprouts, the cruciferous vegetables, they have become toxic to so many people. The nightshades, critical for alkaloids no longer tolerated by a huge swath of the population. And so we've gotten to this point where it didn't, we're losing our ability to, to have health. Our planet is no longer producing the nutrients and our bodies can no longer tolerate the nutrients that we would need to thrive as a species or as a biology on the planet. And so that's the reality that we were facing in 2012. And we were studying soil science to try to figure out what, what were we missing or what was now in the food that was causing all these problems. How was kale making inflammation go up? And the answer ended up being Roundup, glyphosate. Glyphosate actually opens up the, the, the tight junctions in the gut to create leaky gut, leaky brain, leaky kidney tubules, and you turn into a, a sponge for toxin. Can't, can't keep it out and you can't clear it. And so you're just absorbing toxin all day long. So glyphosate is the, the gatekeeper damaging the tight junctions, the Velcro between the cells, your leaky sieve on the front end does the same thing in the kidney tubules. You can't eject the toxin. So that's what we, we're, we're dealing with. But the, the terahydrate molecules that are in the product you just pulled off the shelf there is the family of, of redox signaling molecules, literally the communication network between the microbiome and the human system. So it's a trans-species communication network of redox so am molecules. I, am I consuming a translator? You're, you're actually consuming a wireless network. And so uh, your cell phone 
uh, has a computer in there that has a receiver and transmitter on it. And you can be, you know, talking to grandma, no problem. And then suddenly you're more than seven miles away from the nearest cell phone tower and the, the message drops and, and you're disconnected. That wireless communication network is very unique because a cell phone tower has never initiated a phone call. It's never talked to your mother. What's talking is you across this wireless communication network. And so what we did was find that, that we could create this redox signaling from the microbial metabolites to help trans-species communication happen so that a single cell was no longer isolated from another cell. And when cells have unfettered access to information, they're constantly in that adaptive, acute inflammatory capacity that we talked about at the beginning. You have a, almost an a, eternal, like unexhaustible capacity for repair if you have enough information. And so it's through isolation that we see the meta-diseases happen. Meta-disease of the planet right now is isolation. If you end isolation, if you can get communication network up and running, the whole system comes back online. And it knows how to heal in order of its priority, which is not so is necessarily like your brain's moving us closer to this, the wireless network. It's, it's, That's right. It's and so if you see candida overwhelming in the body, for example, it's because the microbes don't know how to recover from this massive injury it got and you're stuck. The problem that we have with probiotics is it's only three species or seven species and it's, it's too narrow. The problem with trying to take a diverse ecosystem like wild ferments and put them into, into normal circulation of the human is, again, we have so much antibiotic in our water systems. Remember that herbicides are antimicrobials. That's how they function. And so as soon as you put a, a Roundup into the water and air and, and rainfall, 75% of the rain, 75% of the air in the United States is contaminated with Roundup. When you're breathing it, you're drinking it, it's raining on you, you can't get a foothold. And so we're like constantly behind this. So we needed a way in which communication to happen without having to rely on bacteria to be there. And that's what ION became first in class of, as we figured out how to deliver the communication network in an environment where there's too much antibiotic for the, the bacteria to be present. And the result is a recovery of the ecosystem. And so that's been what we've been doing for the last eight years in our science lab and beyond is put the communication network there, the gut microbiome, the skin microbiome, and the rest, and you, we're using the sinus spray, which is the fastest way to sense the change in your body. A few sprays in each nostril, and, and within 30 seconds, 60 seconds, you're breathing differently. And you stop the post-nasal drainage that's been chronic for years in your system because you're breathing not only herbicides, pesticides, and all of the small particulate of microplastics and all that in the junk, you're also breathing in pollen that can no longer be kept on the right side of the membrane, and it's absorbing into your immune system. As soon as you put terahydrite onto the, onto the cell system, it starts making tight junctions. And so the very first studies that we did with this was to demonstrate that you can rebuild the gut lining in a matter of minutes, not months, when, it, when you have enough communication network on play. And so we found that Mother Nature, in her soil 60 million years ago, put a vast amount of information, uh, this communication network, into her soil systems, and that's how we extract it. So we extract uh, these small carbon metabolites from fossil soil at 60 million years old, which is pertinent because 55 million years ago was our last great extinction by death of the topsoil. We lost 87% of life on Earth when an asteroid hit and killed the topsoil with a layer of dust that choked out the, the, the topsoil. We are now doing the exact same thing. We have lost 97% of the soil on Earth is now depleted or severely depleted. And it's silting, which is really dangerous. That's why we're having global warming accelerate is because there's silting of the soil. It can't breathe. When you choke the surface of the planet, 
you start to accumulate carbon in the atmosphere. Carbon then acidifies the oceans as that's the only dumping ground now for the carbon because the, the ground can't breathe. And now you kill 87 to 97% of life on Earth. So we're in our sixth grade extinction due to a choking out of the topsoil just like 60 million years ago or 55 million years ago. If you go back 60 million years ago, you get to tap into a communication network that's never gotten back to that level of biodiversity and intelligence that we, we had back then. And so when you take ion, you're the very first human to be exposed to 60 million year old intelligence. We're only been here 200,000 years. And so I get goosebumps every time I see somebody reach for one of those bottles for the first time of like, you are literally about to have a non-human experience. No <laughs> homo sapien has had the experience you're about to have. You're about to tap into a deep, deep wisdom of how cells are, are able to communicate. And when you get that unfettered access, we show DPP4 enzymes kick in. We show glutathione kick in. We show, you know, all kinds of, uh, the, the lysine goes through the roof. So lysine production is a very specific antiviral uh, that's made by the, the microbiome within your gut. And as soon as you start taking ion, lysine goes up, carnitine goes up to help protein synthesis and muscle man management and all of this. And so the whole system is making so much protein so fast that it's defying our, our, our previous beliefs about longevity aging, the potential for human biology, because we never have seen it in nature's full capacity. And so I get very excited about this. And I No, it's great. And also too, but it's, it's kind of a goosebump moment to find out we don't know what human potential looks like yet. Yeah, we're still, uh, just scratching the surface. And um, I want to just let everyone know it's tasteless um, because it's a, li there's a liquid and the, there's no smell or any kind of aftertaste or weirdness with the nose spray. So just, you know, because it's coming in liquid form, some people would wonder about that. So wonderful. There's, we just barely scratched the surface, and I'd love to have you back on again this year at some point to, to get in further depth on some of these issues. But everyone can go to Zach Bush, and that's Z-A-C-H-B-U-S-H.com, right? Or Zach Bush, Zach Bush MD. ZachBushMD.com. Great. Thank you so much for your work, for creating this product. Um, and is there anything you'd like to leave our audience with as we wrap up here? You know, I, I just would like to recognize that we're here on purpose. And a lot of times it can feel like, oh my gosh, great extinction. And I'm freaked out that the soils are dying and we have climate change and we have pandemics. And there can be this sense of hopelessness and a sense of, of just fear can sneak in. And I just want to encourage everybody listening that uh, the earth is populated with not 7.8 billion people, but 7.8 billion souls. And I really believe that we are ancient wise beings that showed up in, in a particle moment as humans right now to be part of a tipping point of an experiment of, of consciousness, an experiment of, of integrity, love, respect. And we need to begin that journey into that real purpose of why we're here with the least among us. And so we need to lift up the soils of the earth and the microbes around us. We need to lift up the children who are being abused today and are not being given the opportunities to become their sole purpose and reach their, their sole potential. Uh, we need to reach out to women who have been suppressed and, and poorly educated throughout the world. And therefore, we have unbalanced uh, socioeconomic dynamics that lead to overpopulation and other things. Uh, education of women is, is, is a future that has to be embraced as, as the secret sauce to finding a homeostasis or balance. We need to start to embrace the indigenous wisdoms and peoples of the earth that we've annihilated, 97% extinction uh, of indigenous peoples over the last couple hundred years alone. 
we need to welcome those people back into leadership positions. We need to start welcoming them back into uh, our CPG companies and, and you know just the, the vast array of consumer products out there that are, are so destructive. We need to start to inform that industry with indigenous wisdoms of balance and homeostasis and respect for nature and make sure that Mother Earth herself is lifted up to become the top line, not, not some bottom line 1% for the planet. 1% for the planet is, I don't even know how we even managed to think that was a reasonable number. Uh, 1% for the planet movement is, is 99% too, too little. Every product should have the idea of we need to be sustainable at the, the most you know, profound levels. We need soil, water, and air to be at our top, top purpose for every company in the world. And so this is our potential as humanity is to come together and look for indigenous wisdoms and deep intelligence of nature to define the society that we would want for our grandchildren uh, to, to not just miss extinction, but to actually reach a new level of thrive and potential as they integrate all areas, transportation, energy, information technologies on the template of Mother Nature herself. And we start to do biomimicry throughout the entire you know, vestige of, of human ingenuity. And we're going to see something really beautiful emerge. That is probably the best parting message I've heard from a guest on all of these hundreds of episodes. Thank you so much for coming on our show. We'll put everything to connect with you and also your product in the show notes. Um, and I hope to have you back on. Thank you so much for your work. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Hey, Primal Blueprint listeners. Did you know that Primal Kitchen Collagen Peptides help support hair, skin, and nails? Well, we offer a variety of collagen products to suit everyone's palate, from unflavored to mango pineapple or golden turmeric to our keto matcha or chai tea collagen latte mixes and more. Visit us at primalkitchen.com and start fueling your day with collagen peptides. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here. If you found your way to the primal path and want to help others live primally too, then visit primalhealthcoach.com to learn how you can join our mission to help 100 million people reclaim their health and how you can turn your passion for wellness into a profitable health coaching career that you love. The world needs health coaches. The world needs you. So visit primalhealthcoach.com today to learn more.